Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, offering remote telefinance services with financial advisors and digital financial planning tools. PersonalCapital.com. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at Irvine.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. It's the California Report magazine, and today on our show, we're going to go back in time some 50 years to when Chicano activists took over Catalina Island. These islands do not belong to the United States. These islands are Mexican territories. And we'll hear about a new podcast that's a love letter to Los Angeles beyond flashy stereotypes about the city. This show for me was like really a love letter to both my friends and family. And my version of LA is, you know, mostly people of color, folks who have immigrated to this country, you know, black folks who have been in LA for two, three generations now, you know, who have also been displaced. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. So much of the activism we're seeing right now around racial justice has roots in radical movements that erupted right here in California. The United Farm Workers, the Black Panther Party, the Asian American Political Alliance, the Native American occupation of Alcatraz. Well, you might not know that back in August 1972, activists occupied another California island. A Chicano activist group called the Brown Berets camped out on Catalina for three weeks. They were demanding that unused land be turned into housing. Our intern, Ariella Markowitz, grew up on Catalina, but she only recently learned about this slice of the island's history, and she says it feels more relevant now than ever. On Catalina, there's this cliff overlooking the ocean, enough space to pitch a few tents. It's beautiful in a down-to-earth way, with all this sparkly, broken glass and carved initials in the breezy eucalyptus trees. Danger. No trespassing, falling rocks. Locals called the spot Burrito Point, and I heard stories as a kid that there was an Occupy movement that happened here in the 1970s. Now I'm back on the island, and I wanted to dig up some stories from home. I googled it and stumbled upon this radical history that I never learned about in school. Growing up, my town was conservative, defined by tourism, and it still is. It's encouraging visitors during a pandemic. Most residents are Latino, 
but white people are primarily running the local government, businesses, and are the landowners. The Mexican-Americans, uh, those are the people that were shortchanged more than anybody, and we continue to get shortchanged. That's Dr. David Sanchez, the man behind the occupation for Chicano rights. Growing up in south-central L.A., he says he confronted gang violence, police brutality, racism, and discrimination. I don't know how I survived it, but I did survive. And uh, it just made me aware that, you know, America was not Disneyland that I thought it was supposed to be. He wanted to create an alternative to joining a gang, an organization that champions cultural pride, unity, education, and advocacy. The Brown Berets. The group was born in 1967 in an East L.A. coffee house called La Piranha. They started using it as a headquarters. Well, the coffee wasn't very good sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes it was a little two days old sometimes. But nonetheless, our main point was to to organize the community. You know, that was our, our hidden agenda. And a lot of people joined the movement. The Brown Berets evolved out of the movement in the Chicano community for social justice. This audio is from a student film called Chicano Moratorium that chronicled the movement in L.A. The Brown Berets are a community organization that give new pride to Chicano youth and that educate all the people in the barrio on their social and political rights. The Brown Berets helped organize mass protests against a disproportionate number of Chicanos dying in the Vietnam War. They were known for taking direct action against police violence, showing up outside the police department whenever a cop killed or brutalized someone. One weekend, Sanchez decided to hop on the SS Catalina, strictly on vacation. We went to the island, and uh, it was just just a very beautiful, seemed to be a very beautiful place, a very beautiful spot on the map. Because you, know, you had the beaches, you had the ocean, you had the hills, you had the sky, you know, you had the flying fish, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was really, really, really nice place to go. Something about the island stuck with him. He rented an apartment. And on the weekends, I would go out there and uh, just really got to know the people and the people from Tremont. Tremont is Catalina's only public housing option. His new friends told him about how hard it was to afford housing on the island. The city council had just passed a measure that limited household sizes to five people. Alongside discrimination and high rents, working-class folks struggled to make it work. So he had an idea, to occupy the island. He was inspired by the occupation of Alcatraz that happened just three years earlier, and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. It ended the war with Mexico in 1848 and gave a huge chunk of land to the U.S., To Sanchez, the treaty is proof that indigenous and Mexican people were systematically disenfranchised and stripped of their land rights. To top it off, neither Catalina Island nor the Channel Islands were explicitly mentioned in the treaty. These islands do not belong to the United States. These islands are Mexican territories. So Sanchez said the idea was, this land should belong to the people, not the landowners. In this archival reenactment video on the Brown Berets YouTube channel, around 26 folks in military uniforms march off the boat dock, displaying huge Mexican flags, past tourists in straw hats, Hawaiian shirts, and bikinis. 
The Brown Berets camped out on this elevated point overlooking the ocean, which Sanchez planned out as a strategic location. They always say, take the high land, you know. You know, it fortifies you from people who want to, to harm you. They put up the Mexican flag and called the spot Campo Tecolote. They didn't have the resources to stay long, but David figured he'd wing it. I, I went over there with $800. You know, that's, what, that's all I had was $800 for the whole operation, right? We bought food, and uh, you know, a lot of the Mexican-American girls uh, came to our camp. Uh, they would bring us enchiladas and beans. And burritos. That's how Burrito Point actually got its name. I mentioned earlier that Catalina Island is a small, conservative community. I posted about the occupation in a big Facebook community discussion forum, and a lot of people nostalgically remember bringing them food and hanging out at Burrito Point. But others plotted against the outsiders from East L.A. This is what people wrote. They camped out up there with no toilets, water, etc., and soon developed strong body odor. It was awful standing anywhere near them in the grocery store line. A bunch of the men in town met up at the golf course with baseball bats, golf clubs, and such, and were all ready to go up and pound the idiots. It was a big deal in a tiny town. There was no violence. I never felt threatened. I was not at that meeting where local men plotted violence, but I have several friends that were. Now, that part was disturbing. I was bummed that some of our good citizens were armed with handguns, intent on raiding a camp of unwitting young people. That angry white mob never ended up storming the hill. One source told me that the local sheriff made them back off before anything happened. But David Sanchez says someone tried to come and take down their Mexican flag. You got stuck in the cactus bush. You know, so it just, you know, we were, we were you know, defended by nature, you know. After three weeks, L.A. County policemen arrived to enforce an illegal zoning ordinance. The Brown Berets were rooted in principles of nonviolence. They didn't resist. They were escorted off the island. The occupation didn't end with more housing on Catalina, so I asked David Sanchez, do you see it as a success? I think it, it was a success. Uh, it was a success because it marked history. The problem was that the police, began to attack the organization on the mainland. Sanchez says the FBI's counterintelligence program targeted the group, attacked their supply lines, and caused chaos within the organization. Sanchez disbanded the Brown Berets in 1973 for the members' own protection. Occupying Catalina was their last act for a really long time. So Sanchez switched gears. He got his PhD, became a teacher, and a drug and alcohol counselor. I think I've done what I had to do, and I continue to to stand for the rights of the people. Okay, here we are. Sanchez actually started the Brown Berets back up again in the mid-1990s. These days, they organize vigils and demand justice for victims of police violence in L.A. In fact, every Wednesday, they protest outside the L.A. District Attorney's office. And they're going to be gathering for the 50th anniversary of the Chicano moratorium protests, the huge march against the Vietnam War in East L.A. later this August. What Sanchez and the Brown Berets did 50 years ago on Catalina Island lives on in the impact it made on people's lives. 
the story that stuck with me the most was from Anna Araisa. It's an island. It doesn't belong to anybody. You live here. It doesn't belong to you. We talked on the phone, and it's a little scratchy. Anna lives in Mendocino County now, but she immigrated to Catalina with her family from Juarez when she was four. She was a teenager when the Brown Berets came to the island, and she remembers her white classmates talking about wanting to, quote, kick the Brown Berets off the hill. Even though Anna called the island home, she says she felt invisible. It wasn't okay to be Mexican. You know, Mexican was like a dirty word. She recalls meeting one of the members of the Brown Berets and spending the afternoon with her. And that moment stuck with Anna. Years later, she left the island and had a long career in organizing farm workers and helping domestic violence survivors. She credits her life trajectory to those seeds that were planted by the Brown Berets. For The California Report, I'm Ariella Markowitz on Catalina Island. And now to a new podcast celebrating California. To be hot, and that's because we have this... Do you remember this song? Summer of 96. I was 11. A distant, synthesized, otherworldly voice says, I ran to the radio to record the song on a cassette tape every time I heard Dr. Dre's intro. Now let me welcome everybody to the Wild Wild West. A state that's untouchable like Elliot Ness. The track hits your eardrum like a slug to your chest. It felt like Dre was introducing everyone to the place that we called home. And then he said, a state that's untouchable like Elliot Ness. And I eventually learned who Elliot Ness was. A pretty well-known Prohibition era agent. Dre's voice eventually listed places and landmarks throughout the state. And made the song feel not just flashy and cool, but also informative. It felt like a social studies class that I always wanted, but never had. That's an excerpt from the opening episode of a new podcast called California Love, which is really a love letter to L.A. It's a memoir about growing up there and coming back from writer Walter Thompson Hernandez. He left L.A. to become a New York Times writer, traveling the world, writing about race, identity, and belonging. As a child of a, a, a Black father, Mexican mother, you know, I've, I've sort of like been in this space where like, you know, I'm, I have questions about identity, I have questions about race, questions about... Um, about the environments that we grew up in. And so for me, as a New York Times writer, you know, I was really sort of interested in asking people who belong to, to different subcultures similar questions, you know, asking people, like, what it means to both belong and not belong. But eventually, you know, I, I kind of had this, like, yearning to come back home and, 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 and learn more about myself at home and, and about my family and my mom and also about the city of L.A. Well, the podcast opens with your own story of, of growing up in L.A. as a young teenager. I started tagging with a group of friends I had met in middle school. And once I learned how to tag, I began to go out and paint the streets. Maybe it was all the things I was seeing and experiencing at home that drove me to be as far away from it as possible. My mom had a boyfriend at the time, this white dude, who was unemployed and smoked weed and drank heavily every single day. He was abusive and controlling towards me and my mom. And he and I would often physically fight, which led to numerous visits from the police. 
Home was definitely somewhere I didn't want to be. And Sight's home life, it was just as rocky as mine. Me and my mom were sleeping in parks in the car, eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for night. Uh, we slept in a lot of back streets in South Central LA, like Western, Imperial. And then the sheriffs will kick us out and we'll move on one block over. Graffiti was a lot of things for me. It was an outlet, a way for me to take out the rage, the pain, and the hurt I was experiencing at home. The streets and the walls, they were basically my therapy. I existed when I did graffiti. I existed. That's why I started doing it. That sense of uh, awakening, rebirth. What was it like to make a podcast that was part journalism, but but really memoir, and did those lines get blurred for you? Absolutely. Um, it was my first time working, you know, in the podcast space, right? So for me, as a journalist, like, the lens, so to speak, has sort of always been on someone else or, or a community around the world. But I think it, it was such a new experience for me to, to really center my own experience as both a narrator and as a subject. You know, I really had to confront a, a lot of things that in, in my own life were like, that the first time that I'd ever really asked myself questions about what it meant to grow up in LA, you know, in a certain time. And it's both a piece of art, but it's also, you know, a show and an experience. And also, you know, it also feels like an audio memoir at the same time. Mm. You know, I grew up in LA too. I grew up right near Fox Hills Mall, which as I learned from the podcast (laughs) is where your dad used to work selling shoes. And, you know, everybody has their own narrative of what L.A. means to them, I think, because there are so many L.A.'s. Why did you think your story was a lens to talk about the city? My story, um, in terms of how I identify as as both a black and brown person in L.A. who grew up in the 90s, like, I haven't really seen the stories that we've presented in this show, you know? Like, I've never seen a story about graffiti told from the experience of someone who was both a graffiti artist and also someone who can document it. And I think for me, you know, as a person of color, it was really important to create something that really resonated with, like, the people who I love the most, my friends and my family. And, and I think it, it's really cool that, you know, when you hear my show, you you really don't hear a sort of traditional podcasting voice, you know? I sound like someone who, who kind of everyone knows. I, I sound like someone's like someone's cousin, someone's neighbor. And I think that was a goal. And I think we succeeded because of that. We talked about tagging and graffiti being a kind of rebirth in that episode. And then you move into an episode about the P line, the party line, where you and other teenagers kind of make up your own identities by calling a telephone party line. It's like an early version of an anonymous chat room. Hey, it's little brownie who's all up in here. How you doing? Are there any girls in here? Hi, I'm Victoria. I'll play this song, play this song. The P-Line was really, I think, one of the first forms of communication in, in ways that sort of like predates, you know, social media and Instagram and, and Facebook and Twitter, right? Like the P-Line was, was a place where we could go to escape. People could, could sort of become someone else and, and lead this like double life. All up in here. So look, in real life, I was a goofy 13-year-old. But on the P-Line, I was someone else. I was an 18-year-old mechanic who lived in Culver City. I'm 6'3", I'm in the gym every day, you know, looking buff. I really thought that's what girls wanted to hear. The P-Line gave me a rush. And to be honest, it's where I learned how to talk to girls for the first time. 
see, I was pretty shy. I had a lisp. I still do. I stuttered, and I didn't have the courage to approach girls I liked. But on the P-line, I could be Little Brownie. I'm looking fresh, you know? And Little Brownie didn't stutter. Damn, you sound good. Where you stay at? And that's why I called and kept calling. It was essentially a safe space, right? You know, growing up in, in L.A. at that time, there was, a, you know, a, a lot of gang violence in the streets and, and, and a lot of turmoil and tension. And for a lot of us, like, it was either being on, in the streets or, or being at home on the P-line. And a lot of us chose the P-line. I love the part where your mom picks up the phone and is like, Walter, get off the phone when you're on the P-line. Come on, please. Just five more minutes. Come on, come on. And your mom really plays a a strong role throughout this. Uh, Eluteria Hernandez, your mom, Ellie, uh, when she was a teenager, she came to L.A. from Mexico. She raised you as a single mom, went on to get her Ph.D., and she brought you to a lot of protests while you were a kid in L.A. My mom's relationship to me was was really interesting, right? Because, like, you know, she had me when she was about 21, when she was a, a junior at UCLA. And, you know, it really felt like both of us sort of grew up at the same time. You know, she was like a mom. She was a sister. She was a friend. She was a mentor. She was a father. She was so many different things to me. You know, oftentimes, like, we, we only know our parents as our parents. And we often forget that, you know, before us, they had these, like, rich lives with, like, so many different experiences. You know, I was really happy and, and, and really grateful that she was able to, to open up to me in a way that was really honest. You know where you, what you've been doing lately. And I don't want to give myself credit for that, but I think I, I do deserve some credit. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Because, uh, because of me, you were introduced to a lot of books. That's right, you're right. Okay, so please. <laughs> um, no, 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 I'm just being fine. That was that was the only thing I could share with you. You know, I could share with you my books. I, you could see me reading until late at night. You could see me having conversations with my colleagues from the PhD program. And, and I think that's why you got hungry for books, hungry for words. And... I see that part of me. For a young boy um, to see that and to experience, you know, like grad school life at, at, at such a young age, you know, it sort of like normalized that experience for me. And, and, and it really let me know that like women of color and people of color can be in grad school and, and, and can get PhDs. Do you remember me asking you for a college fund in elementary school? <laughs> Mijo, if I'm what happened? years old... <laughs> <laughs> I will still remember that we were in the kitchen. <laughs> we were going to have dinner. You were about eight, seven, and then you said, Mom, do I have a college fund? I looked at you with this big... <laughs> big, wide-open eyes. And I said, cabron, hazme el favor. We barely have money to eat hot dogs and you'd want me to have a college fund for you. And I said, where did you get that idea? And you very innocent. You said, mom, everybody at school were talking about college fund. I just wanted to know if I have one. Ay, mijo. 
We went from tagging and and hanging out on the P-Line and hanging out at your mom's office hours to to becoming a writer and working for the New York Times, which I'm sure, you know, was really shaped in in many ways by your growing up in L.A. I mean, a lot of your work has focused on race and identity. One piece you did for them turned into a book that came out this spring about the Compton Cowboys. Tell us who they are and, and why their story stuck with you so much. The Compton Cowboys are a group of, of 10 childhood friends who ride horses um, in, in a horse ranch in Compton called the Richland Farms. I, I think a lot of people, like myself, you know, I, I didn't grow up with the images of, of black men and women on horses until I saw them riding around in Compton. If I could go back and talk to young Walter, I would tell him that there were black cowboys all along, long before he was surprised to see them that day on Alameda Street. I tell him that black cowboys had a big part of the American West and that they came here to be free. Just like my grandfather, Walter Thompson, and thousands of other black men and women. I tell him that one out of every four cowboys was black and that they were some of the most daring and adventurous riders. And they had names like Bill Pickett, Nat Love, and John Ware and thousands others whose names we'll never know, but whose stories continue to live on today. They're embodied in people like Anthony. Every kid out here looking up to somebody, and it could be you, Walter, me, T-Man. So it's like you got to set an example, you know, a different path. That's what I love. See, I love doing that, because I'm changing their life to be okay. What do you like? I like small horses. I like fast horses. I like horses that are used to, like, cattle. They're embodied in people like 10-year-old Josh. Do you guys rather want to go home to, on your iPad, or you guys want to be at the Compton Cowboys and walk in and be in a parade? Be in a parade? <laughs> exactly. Like young Keenan. When you're on top of the horse, yes, yeah. it's like the world just chills out for a minute. It's like you're in control of something. And they're embodied in the city of Compton. All right, they've been Compton Cowboys! Cowboys. Yay! Cowboys. <laughs> Looking good, Compton Cowboys. Looking good. Walter, how do you hope that these stories about L.A., which are your stories, but they're also the stories of, of the city in a bigger way, how do you hope that they're going to resonate with people across California. I'm really hoping that that a show like California Love can really sort of like unpack a lot of the the sort of like stereotypes and tropes about a city like LA, palm trees and Hollywood and like, you know, the beaches. And I think all of those sort of areas exist, but there's like so many layers. And, and my version of LA is, you know, mostly people of color. And it's, it's like, you know, f- folks who have immigrated to this country. It's like, you know, black folks who have been in LA for, for two, three generations now, you know, who, who have also been displaced. I, and I think this show for me was like really a love letter to, to both my friends and family who have chose to stay in LA despite, you know, gentrification, despite the, the increase in, in housing costs. And also, for a lot of my friends and family who have been forced out of, out of LA and, and forced out of their homes and communities. You know, there's a lot of nostalgia in this show and there's also a lot of grief and sadness and I think, and joy, right? And I think I'm hoping that people can experience all of that in a way that's like 
both hyper-specific to L.A., but also universal. But I also just love how, like, L.A. to me is just, like, this, like, crash site for, like, so many different worlds and experiences and, and languages and cultures, right? And I think, you know, if you grow up in L.A., you, you know, you, you've essentially grown up in a, in a really global city, right? So to me, it's like living and understanding L.A. is really a way of understanding the world. So I really appreciate that. Walter Thompson Hernandez is the host of the new podcast, California Love, from our partners at LAS Studios. And hey, next week, you can have an opportunity to chat with Walter about his show. He's going to be in conversation with Tanya Mosley, host of KQED's Truth Be Told, the advice show by and for people of color. You can find out more at kqed.org slash events. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Victoria Maleon is our senior editor. Amanda Font is our director. And Rob Spate is our technical producer with additional engineering from Seal Muller. Our team also includes Ariela Markowitz and Asal Asanapur. Special thanks this week to KQED's Kiana Mojadem and Kristen Hayford and Megan Tan at LAS Studios. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors like watermelon, pineapple, and blackberry. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Paint Care. Ideas for storing leftover paint to keep it fresh. And tips for using it up can be found at paintcare.org and Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.